All right, Todd, thanks for joining us today on the White Noise Podcast. Before we get started with the case and the discussion, just want to ask you a couple of questions to get to know you better so our listeners kind of know who we're talking to. So if you could give us a one-liner about yourself and try to include something outside of the realm of medicine or psychology. So just a narrative about something I like? Yeah, sure. Um, Probably the most consistent thing that I love is an annual trip to Nova Scotia to go salmon fishing with my brother. Um, week of October. You guys catch a lot. We catch next to nothing. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) mosquitoes are up there, right? It's the journey that counts. Yes. A lot Uh, lot of beer on the lake. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's afterwards. That's That's after being skunked. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I thought, I thought fishing was just an excuse to go drinking on a boat. Well, but, okay. <laughs> it, 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 when you, when you don't catch any fish for an entire day, it's a great excuse to drink. There you yes. go. Well, that does, that, yeah. that, that is adds, true. adds a little volume to the I, I'm from Minnesota originally. So fishing is a big deal because we are the land of 10,000 lakes, yeah. even though go. most of them are little ponds, but um, yeah, fishing is a lot of fun. We good pike sure. fishing, I bet. Good. Yeah. Good pike, good walleye. Yeah. So um what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received, this is absolutely the best, is to be with what is so that what is to be can become. That's deep. I'm going to have to think about that. Think, yeah, think for the about that. the week. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, like the power of now, living in the moment. Well, it would be, yes. It's a very mindful, um, thoughtful uh, process, but it's the best. Um, if you ask for the best piece of advice, that was it. That's good. Yeah, I'm gonna, I, like, I like that. I'm going to understand that at the end of the episode and then say, aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm like half an hour late. <laughs> and uh, lastly, what is something kind of that you've enjoyed a lot the last month? You know, whether it's a book that you think everyone, you know, should read or a TV show, a movie, or it doesn't really have to be media related, but kind of just anything that you're really sure. kind of into. Well, I just finished uh, uh, an outstanding book, um, and it's <clears throat> the title of the book is Paths of Glory. It not to be confused with um, Path to Glory, which is kind of the all quiet on the Western Front uh, narrative. This is the story of George Mallory, the famous British mountain climber who. Um, with some controversy, according to the British, uh, was the first to reach the summit of Mount Everest. They found his body um, about right. a dozen years ago, and uh, there are some indications that he might have, in fact, done that. Anyway, this is his story, and it's a wonderful read, uh, Jeffrey Archer. Archer, um, and I would recommend it highly. Did he climb with Tenzing Norgay? He did not. That would have been Hillary. Oh, yeah. Okay. I get those two mixed up. So Mallory preceded Mallory them. was yeah. preceding them. Yeah. A different ridge, different uh, access point. And uh, I didn't know there was suspicion that he actually made it. So well, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I mean, it was the, that's yeah, cool. the first use of oxygen. He did not use it, by the way, but his yeah. um, climbing partner did. And um, they followed them to a point on the ridge, which was probably no more than um, a couple hundred uh, feet from the summit and uh, lost sight of them. And then they had no awareness of where they were, but they did find his body on the downward slope and it looked like he was returning. Hmm. Wow. That is incredible. <laughs> I mean, they had, they were, yeah. they were wearing wool at that time. They, they didn't have they, synthetic fibers, was, you yeah, know, like yeah. knickers, it, knickers and uh, yeah. wool coats. It's crazy. The only thing that really sealed the deal is that he had, they found a letter that he wrote his wife uh, indicating that when I get to the top, I will put your picture on the summit. Oh. And he had the picture in his billfold. And when they found his, even he's perfectly preserved. Yeah. Uh, they found his billfold. The picture was not there. Oh, so there we presumably go. he placed it on, on the summit. Yeah. There you go. Nice. Interesting. I think I'd like to check that out. Yeah, it's good. We'll link it to, uh, we'll set a link to it in the, in the website so you can check it out. Let's get ready. Uh, and let's get going with the, uh, with the clinical case. So, um, so we have uh, Sergeant Sleep G. Pyle. Uh, he's a 62-year-old man with a history of coronary artery disease, status post MI, hypertension, depression, and PTSD, who presents to your clinic complaining of sleep disturbance. He notes that for the past 10 years, he has had difficulty staying asleep. He gets into bed around 11 p.m. and will turn the TV off 
sorry, and will turn the TV on and use a 30 minute timer. He is asleep before the TV turns off. Three to four hours after falling asleep, he wakes up drenched in sweat. He states that he is woken up by severe nightmares uh, of his time in combat. Once he has woken up, he has difficulty going back to sleep because of fear of re-experiencing prior traumatic events. It typically takes him about 45 to 60 minutes to fall back to sleep. He tosses and turns in bed, and occasionally he will turn the TV back on. Some nights he is unable to get back to sleep within an hour, so he gets out of bed and starts the day. If he is able to get back to sleep, it is very likely that he will have another nightmare two to three hours later. If this happens, then he knows he will not be able to get back to sleep and just gets out of bed. He estimates that he has nightmares five out of seven nights per week, and that the following day he has significant difficulty with work and relationships. He is more anxious, depressed, and has a harder time concentrating on work. All right, so we'll stop there. And I guess the first question we have for Todd is, um, you know, if you saw someone like that, you know, coming to your clinic or that was referred to you, how do you, well, you know, what, what's, what's kind of going through your mind? What's, you know, what type of diagnosis do you think you'd give him or? Well, I, I think it's probably important to preface that my role in the uh, Veterans Administration Health Services uh, in the PTSD clinic. So I would see someone like this ostensibly after having been evaluated for post-traumatic stress. Okay. And so if that had not been done, if this was a one-off or mm-hmm. another setting, I, I would think that would be a necessary and requisite part of the kind of diagnostic structure. Is, is it and at what level of acuity is it um, PTSD? Um, I think um, speaking more about the sensibility related to sleep and the impact of nightmares, uh, I think that one of the things we might do a disservice to veterans with in the PTSD clinic is by rolling nightmares into the diagnosis because it is part of the part of the uh, formula for the PTSD diagnosis under DSM. And um, what often happens is that they get treated by first line treatments for PTSD and nightmaring often gets short shrift. It doesn't really get identified or, or addressed as a singular issue or symptom. And so I think one of, the, one of the problems that someone like this might have is that he would go through um, a series of treatments for PTSD. Some of his symptoms might abate, but in my clinical experience, I think the biggest concern would be that um, most folks who get first-line treatment continue to complain of nightmaring. Um, mm-hmm. So for some reason, the conscious um psychosocial involvement does not necessarily translate into sleep, um, the sleep manifestation of trauma. So that would be one of the things that I, I would uh, do is particularly say um, either in tandem or more likely in sequence after the PTSD treatment, that there should be um, a reassessment, which is often done um, to look at PTSD symptoms, but to particularly target nightmaring and see if that needs some specific um, attention. Oh. Yeah, I, I see that on my side as a sleep doctor at the VA that, you know, and we, we've talked about this before where they're getting to me after being treated for PTSD and it's treated, but the nightmares are either treatment resistant or not being addressed at all. And that may be because there's a lot of other things that they're taking care of, sometimes depression, bipolar, bipolar the nightmares just don't come up. Uh-huh. Um, but, but in my clinic, I'm specifically screening for nightmares. Right. And so we often have that conversation even after years after they've been discharged from mental health, they, they remain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And even within the PTSD clinic, I think there is a way in which we go through the kind of triage, the symptoms and, and most of the emphasis on asking questions about symptom structure have to do with intrusive thinking, which of course, you know, re-experiencing an intrusive thought is part of the nightmare structure, but it really is addressed in the conscious state. So I don't think that there's a real attention to what is your sleep like? What is it? What, what's the amount of sleep? What's the, you know, the um, particular functionality after a poor night sleep? And are you getting kind of the continuity of sleep? Or are you, are you having good sleep onset? None of that really um, comes into full view unless we ask those questions. Uh-huh. 
when, when you get these patients after they've been seen primarily by mental health and they've done the psychotherapy and the SSRI combo therapy, it seems like that's what the approach is. That's right. How often do you feel like the nightmares are treatment resistant to that? I would say, um, and this is really kind of spitballing, but I would say that it's well over 60% of the time that there is not a clear resolution. There may be a reduction, mm -hmm. but again, even um, within the, the DSM, um, when, when you look at nightmare disorder, there still is this idea about the, um, you know, the modifiers, right? Where you're talking about how acute um, or yeah. subacute they are or how persistent they are, as well as whether their range is in the mild, moderate or severe level. So, I mean, you can move up and down those scales and still be pretty problematic with regard to nightmaring. Yeah, right. And then you, brought, you raised up a good good point about the acute and chronic nature of it. You know, we get people that have had them for 20, 30 years. Obviously that's more like a chronic, what I call now a habitual case where they're just habit. It's a habit for them. They have it, uh, you know, either way. Um, and when you break that habit, we can get rid of it. But is there a timeline that they say for like acute versus chronic in, in mental health or is this kind of like a, eh, you know, it's been there a year or two. It's probably chronic at this point. I don't know that. Um, are we talking about PTSD or are we talking nightmares. about nightmares? Yeah, so, yeah. so for the nightmares, I think that I don't know what the specific cutoff would be. I mm -hmm. think it would certainly have to be after, after a period of, of years, that if this was continuing past, yeah the impact of a trauma, particularly where I'm working, where trauma nightmares are being identified. Um, after a year, I would say that that would really put it in the persistent realm. Sure. Yeah. And that initial first line of psychotherapy and medications uh, for the patient with PTSD uh, who may often have nightmares, why do you think it doesn't uh, treat the nightmares um, as fully as it may treat the symptoms during wakefulness. Um, is there, is there something missing in that initial round of treatment or are the nightmares more refractory yeah. to therapy? Do they need more targeted approaches? I suspect that it's probably both. I don't have, um, I don't have any data to, um, you know, assert one position or the other, but I, I think that I think that nightmares just by the sheer nature of um, how they present there is um, a problem with the first line treatment in a conscious state. It's very focused on what are the experiences of the individual in their daytime functioning? Mm -hmm. How do we help them habituate toward uh, less reactivity? All of those things are done with language and with context in conscious awake situations. So when we, when we translate that, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying all of those nightmares are state dependent, but if we translate that to sleep, if the idea or theory behind this being a habit uh, in sleep, um, in the sleep domain, there's nothing that's really interrupted that. There's no real conscious um, input that says this is what you're going to do before you go to sleep or when you're asleep or when you wake up from sleep. It's all about when you're up functioning and dealing with not wanting to go to the grocery store when there are lots of people around. Uh -huh. So I think that I think that that's where um, the nightmare interventions really specifically target all of the aspects of leading up to sleep, how to prepare for sleep, how to deal with sleep interruption and what to do with nightmares in particular. So in general, you if <clears throat> you believe so PTSD should be treated first before you even try to, you know, treat nightmares or is it something that you would do hand in hand or, or. I, yeah, I, I can only speak from my clinical experience, which right. is that typically, I mean, and I've made this request as we were working on putting a protocol together for nightmare reduction, um, that everyone goes through the assessment, uh, identification of the symptom structure, and um, we kind of keep an eye on them if they're having sleep-related problems and nightmaring, but they go through first-line treatment, either a, a prolonged exposure therapy to address the trauma or a cognitive processing therapy that kind of looks at the, the elements of how this has had an impact on their, their functioning in adult life. And then at that point, if we're still seeing an uptick or a consistency in their nightmare report, then they have... Two things. One is they have a very clear indication that they're refractory. Yeah. They also have a lot of uh, self-efficacy in terms of having learned some methodologies that are going to aid them 
in dealing with uh, nightmares. And would you mind describing what you do as far as the, the, the management for you know, these patients that finally do make it to you? What does that, tell us more about what that involves because you do something, it's kind of unique. Yeah. You, I've only seen it at this VA and um, with the dream scripting. And yes. Okay. Well, so, so you mentioned, I, I probably to talk about this, I should go back a little bit if you don't mind my getting uh, off on my um, tangent. So when I came to the VA, this was a front and center problem. Every veteran that I saw was complaining uh, about nightmares and, and they were less interested in all of the exposure therapy and more interested in getting a good night's sleep. And so one of the things that we began to look at is, are there any protocols out there for decreasing nightmares? Can we, can we promote better sleep function and can we reduce nightmares? And at that point, um, uh, Krakow's model uh, of IRT or uh, imagery rehearsal therapy was really just coming into its own. And um, it had some really profound efficacy in dealing with rape victims. Um, so the, the trauma piece to that was quite, um, you know, attractive. And we did try to apply it in the way that it had been uh, pulled together as a protocol. Um, it didn't have the same kind of um, power with our particular population as it did with the rape victims. And we began to look at the structure of what was going on with the, the ask that we had for veterans to kind of rescript something that was for them uh, a, a very vivid memory of a very poignant and powerful um, uh, event uh, that often many of them had a certain temperament to memorialize. But um, I think the difficulty was in how they could relate differently to this and the feeling that we were trying to get them to change something that couldn't be changed. Mm -hmm. um, so it really put us on our heels. We didn't get very good outcomes. Um, we ran about 10 groups. Um, we didn't see changes in nightmare frequency or intensity. Um, and, uh, and we began scratching our heads thinking, what can we do? Um, so at that point, we, we um, had some funding to look at a different model, which is um, a model that uh, Joanne Davis uh, was working with. And um, she was looking at something that was much more akin to the first line treatments. And by that, I'm saying she borrowed some elements of cognitive processing therapy by looking at thematic elements of the veterans production of dreams, which made great sense. We began looking at that model and we tested it out and, and it had a much more powerful effect. It, it, it kind of circumvented some of the pushback or resistance to doing the treatment. It didn't really put people in a position of having to say, well, you know, you're trying to take something away that's important, but horrifying for me. Um, we were able to really um, look at um, the uh, kind of proximity of the nightmare to uh, the time in which veterans were practicing a particular rescripting that was based on themes. So it was a one step into um, this is a narrative process. Everything we, we think is not a fact. And sometimes the dreams are not vivid re reenactments. But let's look at what the theme is. And based on the theme, um, which typically falls into a category of five, um, uh, safety, trust, power and control, intimacy and, and self-esteem. And if we can, if we can get um, at least a domain within which to construct something that might address that problem in the dream, the problem is I didn't feel very effective as a soldier. I didn't protect my, my, uh, you know, my, my other um, soldiers. Um, then to build something into that, that might address the problem of self-esteem. Um, and then that becomes practiced, uh, the way we do it at, at, at RVA is, is probably a little different than other, uh, shops, but we really felt that it was important to keep the context, uh, and the, the, the true kind of valence of the dream in kind of in place. So what we're saying is we don't want you to change anything that's elemental to the, to the memory or into the trauma, the setting, the, setting, yeah. the, the, the experience, the emotions, whatever. But mm -hmm. we want to try and kind of work at it at the thematic level. Mm -hmm. So what would we put in here that would help you feel like you were more effective? Mm -hmm. And so that rescripting then becomes practiced before bedtime multiple times, either by audio. We've tried audio with the voice of the 
um, veteran, voice of the therapist. Um, we've done it by reading uh, what, what has been written out. Um, all seem to have some power, um, but, you know, locus of control seems to have some importance. And then we follow it up with um, a reduction uh, either with PMR or what we've been trying um, lately has been mindfulness kind of body scan mm-hmm. to really reduce arousal, put them to sleep. And, and really try to inoculate against the idea that because we're practicing this dream, you know, seven nights a week for six weeks, we really don't want the expectation that this is the dream that will present itself because we have no data that that's the case. We do have some data that intensity and frequency um, drops, and we do sometimes get some morphing or shifting, which tells us something about the, the, the disruption of the structure or habit. There's more dreaming coming in. It might be more, sometimes more lucid. Sometimes it's, it's more um, uh, varied and, and uh, you see dreams that have a more positive valence come in. So I think the idea of this is that we were more proximal to the dream uh, experience and we were putting things in that were a little bit more uh, palatable and could be metabolized by the veteran um, um, better. Yeah, I mean, it, it that the dreams do, given they're they're remembering their friends lost, you know, people they lost, they, they do have an attachment. Yeah, even though they're awful nightmares, they do have an attachment to their identity. Exactly. Yeah, and that was it seems to be important. And obviously, it seems like it would be the case. Yeah. Is there any, you know, in your initial visit in clinic or when you you know you see the patient for the first time, do you do any kind of evaluation to determine severity of nightmares to kind of guide what your treatment should be? And then what is a reasonable expectation, you know, to say, okay, you know, treatment has been successful. Um, do you, how do you evaluate that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And so I, I think, um, to the earlier question, yes, we evaluate. So my task is to look at the current status of their kind of trauma symptom expression, to look at the current status of their nightmaring. Has it shifted? Is it, um, we often see this in psychosocial treatments where after a treatment has ended, we get this kind of um, trajectory of treatment improvement if things have gone well, because you're, you know, the the movement psychologically is a little bit slower than um, with medication, this kind of thing. So um, there's a learning curve, learning acquisition is taking place. And so we want to kind of see where they are on that trajectory. Um, It gives us a little bit of an indication of kind of the rigor with which we need to really address the nightmare. If it's just not budged at all, if they haven't really changed in their expression of PTSD, and we're really seeing someone who is just chronically, um, you know, charged and having difficulty, um, we're going to approach that a little differently. We'll look at medication help um, and work in tandem with folks who are going to be helping uh, produce a little bit more sleep. Um, But I think that if, You know, my task is really looking at where that baseline is at the point in which they come in, um, putting them together with uh, a rationale about how the group works, what the reasonable expectations are. We don't want to set those expectations too high because everybody wants to get a good night's sleep and they don't want to have another nightmare as long as they live. And that's just not realistic. You know, sleeping is going to be problematic, but we can get you you know, we can get you a little bit more sleep if we stay with this protocol and see if we really can work through some of these nightmare interruptions. We also feel that we can successfully reduce the frequency and intensity of the nightmares and and really try to, on a weekly basis, um, uh, look at those kind of metrics as something that shows change. Because the biggest struggle is getting people to buy in, right? right? So the the sense of, you know, it's not happening. The the internal narrative is like everything else. It's just not working. We want to be able to show that even if it's a minuscule effort um, and, and, um, and by effort, I, you know, in terms of looking at whether or not these, um, these dreams are shifting, um, something that is moving in a direction is still, you know, accountable. And we can really begin to show with some persistence, these things can shift. How long, you know, does it take for, you know, you to see results on, on, I mean, obviously you can't give an exact answer, but just from your experience, how, you know, how long, you know, a couple of weeks before, you know, of doing this, this therapy or is it, it it's all over the board. So I, I've, I've had, um, and usually these are small groups because it it's works a little bit better in an intimate environment um, where people can kind of share some of their information. 
um, and, and not uh, too much emotional loading of traumatic um, uh, descriptions of things. But um, I have seen um, examples of, of individuals who within three weeks have um, come back and said, you know what, I'm sleeping um, consistently better. Um, I'm not, not waking up from the dreams, but I'm still dreaming, which is really what we're shooting for. I am really eager to hear someone come in and say, I had a bad dream, but I didn't wake up because that to me says that the trauma is being processed. When you wake up from kind of that, that REM state and begin to, um, kind of come into conscious uh, awareness and you're aroused that disrupts the whole processing, I think of traumatic, um, content. Um, and so um, we've seen that within a very short period of time, three weeks, four weeks. Um, I've had people not really have much of a change um, at all. Um, it may take um, one or two groups. We've often had people come back multiple times. Um, and sometimes what we find is that the dream that has been provided is not really the dream that is most problematic. And, and for reasons of shame and guilt and all kinds of other things, it just didn't really find its way onto the radar. Um, probably some of the more outstanding um, examples that I have is after, um, you know, these are usually uh, eight week groups. Um, uh, I had someone who was just uh, very hard uh, to engage and did not want to uh, kind of follow the protocol and was not doing the practice and, um, and yet was waking up multiple times a night with the same dream um, and had been doing so for the last 40 years. And um, at the end of, this was probably about uh, two sessions near the end, uh, he comes in and proclaims that he has figured out how to deal with his dream. And um, with, with kind of a dubious uh, air, I asked him to explain that. And he did. He sketched it all out. And he did not have that dream again. And I have seen him six years post, and he has never had that dream recur. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned like an eight week course. Is that, because as far as I know, this it takes some, this is a involved therapy. It, it's a lot of work. And so having a patient that's cooperative is important. Are there a certain subset of patients as far as like nightmare type or frequency or theme or how chronic it's been that this works better for? Yeah. I mean, I think that it works best for someone who has had um, a recent traumatic event who has a fairly flexible cognitive style, can take perspective, can look at things rationally and um, with a bit of, um, with a bit of ref reflection. Insight. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that they have had a successful course of treatment with uh, a PTSD treatment that we, we know to be uh, effective. And, and, and then starts this particular treatment as a way to kind of address that capstone of getting nightmares and sleep in order. I mean, that's the perfect patient. I've never had him. What about patients with just random content? I mean, you know, cause I, I see a lot of recurrent theme, but not certainly recurrent nightmares. They'll say, well, it's always military themed, but it's not one area place setting. And I'm always like, well, I don't know if that's going to work for, for, res for yeah. rescripting. So that's an important part of the assessment phase is to, first of all, get an idea of, I mean, if someone comes in and says, yeah, I have these horrible nightmares, you know, every year around the Tet Offensive, I'm not going to be able to do much with that because we don't have the frequency to really look at whether reduction is occurring. I'd have to see him for the next 10 years. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so I think the idea of frequency, the idea of this coalescing of around a theme, mm -hmm. if it's really random and, and sometimes they're very bizarre, they're very traumatic, but they're very bizarre and there's no real theme to dig a hook into. Um, that can be a prob problem in itself. And I think what it really calls for is maybe a little bit more of that uh, preparatory work. Mm -hmm. I guess kind of getting into that preparatory work. Um, I, I think both John and, and you, you guys are in a unique position because you are, you're at the VA. Um, I don't, you know, definitely see many of these nightmare, uh, or, you know, patients, but how do you, I guess, how do you approach, like, what type of questions are you asking these patients to kind of help you figure out what type of nightmares they have? I mean, other than how many times you, you know, cause I feel like 
in, in general sleep clinic, we kind of just ask if someone has nightmares and then they say yes or no. And we don't really kind of dig too much more into that. I mean, these are, these are things that are deeply personal, um, to, to patients. And I guess what's the, what's a good way to kind of establish that, that rapport and kind of get to the heart of, of really what's bothering them or what, what may be behind their, you know, their nightmares. Um, the first thing that I learned to do was not ask them if they have nightmares. <laughs> See, <there you're>, that's, <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, right. um, nightmares mean something to just about everybody that you meet. And, and it's not always the same thing. And it's not always really what we're keying into. So right. um, some people are talking about, you know, night terrors and associating to to something that they had developmentally as a younger person. And they're kind of making that linkage. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm having night terrors. Sometimes um, they're having bad dreams and they're sleeping. And, and I'm saying, hoorah, you got, you got the corner here. You, you, you can really move with this. So I think it's really about trying to kind of come in operationally and functionally and understand what the struggle is, what it's about, what the uh, specificity of the experience is. And, and just plow the field. So it's really not about labels and not about kind of assuming. It's about, tell me what this is like for you. How often is it happening? Does it happen more at any different point in the year? You know, does your bed partner have any observation about this? You know, so I think there are lots of things that really um, pay dividends when you ask um, a series of questions. So I've been doing this wrong my whole life. <laughs> well, well, I, there's lots of approaches in medicine. So when, from a, from a provider standpoint for sleep, I, I started focusing on nightmares. I had the opposite approach in a way because I kept having compliance problems. And, you know, I, you know, in your view of systems for sleep, you ask about nightmares, you know, sleepwalking, sleep talking, hallucinations, blah, blah, blah. And I started, and after a while, I realized that if I didn't do something about the nightmares, uh, my compliance, these guys weren't going to keep a CPAP mask on. And so I started specifically screening them just to have the conversation. And yeah, Todd's right. People call like, I move, my wife thinks I have nightmares because I thrash around at night. I'm like, well, do you have any bad dreams? And they're like, no. So I'm like, no, that's not a nightmare, you know? And, and so I had to undo, and I also ran into some cases where, I was treating the wife's complaints of the patient moving around, you know, and without like really teasing this out and talking to people about it, you will, you will be led down a road you don't want to go. And so I ended up being more aggressive about it. And that's kind of how, how I, I got into this, um, really in the CPAP, a sleep apnea mix world, which is 95% of my caseload, about 30%, 40% of my patients have nightmares that I have to sometimes get better, but Quite often I have to still do something about because right. it's, and a lot of times it's a random content and not, I don't think they're good material for you to work on. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think those are always question marks. And I think that the first pass is let's see if there is some kind of connective tissue, something that consolidates this into a meaningful kind of narrative. Sometimes it's there and it's not yeah. being articulated uh, for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it is just uh, kind of these idiopathic, you know, nightmare, um, situations that are, that are either not happening regularly enough or happening and they don't really have, um, a basic kind of, um, ideology. Um, so I, I think it really is, it just, you know, you, we, we, we all know this about, um, working with people, you, you, the dividends that are paid by really spending time at the front end, um, save you an awful lot of struggle, stress, and strain as you're trying to make something work and get compliance. So the more you understand at the front end, I think the better off you are. That's there true. Was, there was a case uh, I saw with John back in my fellow days uh, at the VA, a gentleman we screened with the DDNSI, who screened very high for nightmare but severity. To interrupt you, what is that for our listeners? Because I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> the Disturbing Dreams and Nightmare Severity Index. Uh and I don't remember the, who created it. Uh, you know what? I, I dug that. Yeah, Krakow. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Well, we got, I, I found an article within it and link and brought it in today, but we'll link it at the end of the show. <laughs> and we'll, so. we'll link to the actual scale so you guys can see it, but basically it's a Likert scale and you just kind of rate there's uh there's five categories of questions and then you rate the severity zero to seven or 14, depending on the question. Yeah. So. So this gentleman screened very high 
and when I went in to talk to him, having the a result of that, I asked him about nightmares. I used the word nightmares and he didn't totally deny bad dreams or nightmares, but he said, just doesn't bother me. Just doesn't bother me. But he was somewhat laconic. And then I went back, John and I talked, we went back in the room and you gave him more time. Um, and you know, there was something I think within him that, um, broke at some point. And he told us this whole story, which I think he had been hanging on to for a long time. So the point is the DDNSI, I think in that case was extremely helpful. Should primary care doctors, sleep physicians have a screening tool and use a screening tool like that on a regular basis in the correct patient population? I would say, it, obviously, I mean, I was there with you. So I, I remember, the, I remember yes. the case, right? And, and this is something I've taken under my wing in, in my own clinic because I, I am serious about kind of the management of my patients. But the, these, some of these men, you know, they, they, their face tells you the story, but their words don't. And, you know, and, and, and I've seen that many times with that, where they're scoring high, but they don't want to talk about it because the, like Todd's mentioned the content is just too extreme. And when Todd says, don't ask them about nightmares, there's like a sad truth in there because they will tell you stories that will make you cry. Uh -huh. And Absolutely. I think, yeah, yeah. They will make you cry in clinic as a practitioner. And so there's a, there's a, that, that struck me when you said that, but, um, so they don't want to talk about them. And so, and I, I actually talk, I, I flush them out when I, when I talk to them, I'm like, look at, I see that you scored high in this. Um, you, you know, you don't have to tell me the content, but is it recurrent? You know, I ask some very directed questions. How often, how long has this been going on for, you know, that's typical HPI stuff. What makes it better? What makes it worse? Mm -hmm. And, and, but to avoid them having a meltdown from going into the content yeah. and making it all about the content, which they don't want to talk about because these guys have seen or have done awful things and they're not proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the unique um, aspect of my uh, practice is that this will have been a familiar bit of territory so that asking or probing a bit is not going to feel unusual for a, a trauma clinician. Um, mm -hmm. But even so, what I've, uh, I, I think these scales are really useful. They're great for baseline. They're often useful for us as clinicians to realize what we don't really get from them. Um, as well as for you to kind of get a sign that something's going on, but it's subterranean, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that looking at it with a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of scrutiny is is helpful. What I have begun to adapt uh, is that when I have someone come in and they're dealing with sleep related issues and nightmaring has been reported to be part of it, I will have them use the um, either the CBTI Coach app or I will have them use a, the consensus sleep diary. And I will very purposely at the end where it says comments, I'll say, I want you to put in here how many times you wake up with a bad dream. And I want you to put a number one to 10 as to how bad it was. And so what I'm getting is this kind of calibrated tick, 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 tick. Now I know that it's happening five times a week and I know that it's at an eight, nine and 10. So that leads to a discussion that has clearly been engaged upon, even though it might be kind of um, a, a bit tacit, uh, th there's an engagement there, which I'm telling you what's happening. I'm just not telling you what it means. Right. Uh, right. Good. So, so Todd, like how common is your service of dream rescripting in, uh, across the VA and in, in the private sector? Because like I said, it's seen, I have not seen this at any other VA. Of course, I haven't been to, a, I've only been in a couple, okay. but well, so it is the private sector. I haven't um, seen it available. Um, so I, I, I have uh, probably more of an understanding just in terms of what gets published and what's out there and what I hear from other uh, clinicians, clinical psychologists who are training um, people in um, providing um, nightmare reduction treatment. So IRT certainly has the lion's share of the, the, um, the press. And I think that's what people are often trained in. 
the ERRT or Joanne Davis's methodology and some of the things we're developing here as kind of extensions of that methodology, that's less known. But I have uh, sat on a, uh, a few dissertations um, in which uh, clinicians are going into the VA um, with this skill set and training people. And um, I think we've been able to disseminate this to Battle Creek. We have, um, I think, Puget Sound, um, several VAs uh, across the country. I don't think it's huge. And and again, I don't think that the referral network is really well developed. And you mentioned image rehearsal therapy. IRT, correct? Yes. Isn't that, that's for more for rape victims, sexual trauma. Am I correct or wrong? About I don't that? think that it's, I don't think that it was ever intended to be specifically for rape victims. That was the original clinical trial. Oh, okay. And it was, it was a great, um, you know, a great effect size. I mean, I think they had um, a, a huge impact on um, uh, one-time rape victims. And, and then it was done that the trials were done in Australia with veterans those also seem to get pretty good um, ratings. We weren't able to make it work quite as well for us here. Maybe we were applying it incorrectly, but. And we do have military sexual trauma patients. And I didn't know if they're, if they are kind of in a different type of nightmare class than the PTSD patients or is it. All we don't get of, them. Yeah. Oh, yeah okay. We don't get them. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we don't know. Right. Cause I, I get someone, you know, I got contacted by someone from Iceland who had nightmares and you know, where do I find a, a proper therapy for them for psychological therapy? You know, like, what do I do? Probably figure out how to use um, uh, telemental health. Okay. I think, I mean, get we're getting better. We're, I yeah. mean, we now have, um, you know, blue jeans. We have secure ways to kind of do this face to face and over, um, over the computer. I think it's doable. Mm-hmm. Um the uh, Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic developed a telephone system for, you know, uh, dealing with um, insomnia. And I think that, you know, we were talking about how we could splice nightmare reduction in on that as well. Sure. And then the other question I have is like a lot of these people, I'm always, if I'm going to send them to someone like yourself to work on, I'm always su- reluctant to kind of start suppressing their nightmares with medications like Prazosin, you know, because that's what we use from the medical side to kind of control nightmares. Has that been a problem? Like if they're started on that, can they do co-therapy or does that just kind of wipe everything out and it's kind of a wash? It, it, it's a conundrum, isn't it? Because we certainly want, usually we get them just at the point where they're getting uh, paralysis and we're going, well, so <laughs> Which made it what's better. the frequency, right? Yeah. So I think what, what we usually do, and you've been great about working with this um, with us, I think the idea is let's, let's try them with the, um, uh, the, the nightmare reduction methodology and um, and then see whether or not this is more refractory and they would benefit from, um, you know, do, a dose of uh, prazosin. But I think some somehow working in tandem, I think the biggest thing is collaboration, right. because often we have people who've been on medication and, and they're really interested in reducing. Right. So if we can get the learning in, that's great. And then you can begin to kind of wean them off. Um, but there has to be kind of a collaborative effort. Sure. What is, you know, let's say I'm a sleep physician in the middle of rural, you know, Minnesota. Yeah. That's where I'm from. Um, you know, and I see, you know, not necessarily a a veteran, but someone who has some sort of, I don't know if it necessarily needs to be trauma. There's lots of veterans in the private sector who just don't go to the VA. Um, It happens all the time. But, you know, if I don't have access to you, Todd, um, what's, you know, and I, I screen them, you know, try to get a, a general sense of what their nightmare is like. How, how does someone who doesn't have kind of the, the resources to, you know, this form of therapy and what's the best approach to kind of helping, helping out there, you know, get better, get better sleep. Yeah. Well, so now you're, now you're, now you're talking about uh, larger issues of healthcare and dissemination. I think these are all important issues. I, I don't know what the solution is to that, but I do think that as we begin to develop these models that are more portable or translatable to different environments and different um, locales, I think that there's got to be a way of making this a little bit more. Like um, a CBTI available. coach or something like yeah. that or an online. Yeah, exactly. Te- telemental health. Yeah. Telemental health. We need to clone you as well, Todd. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I don't 
I don't think you want the real artifact of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a dream tracking app called Dream Easy that the VA had, but I, it was clunky. I, I did not use it. Um, also, because I have a time constraint when I start talking to people. Remember, I do with the comorbidity of, mm-hmm. of sleep apnea and I'm managing a couple other things at the same time. So to, to, to do that and follow up has been hard to do. Just want to make one yeah. kind of caveat sure. here. So the the thing about this, and probably apropos of your question, I think that it isn't a one size fits all model. Right. It is also not a clinician learn the protocol and apply model. This is a very flexible kind of engaged um, discussion and collaboration with a patient around what's working, what's not working, how can we really derive the best theme? Sometimes the first rescripting you get turns out to kind of um, fall flat and the person comes back saying that's not really what it's about at all. It's about this. Um, So you you have to really have a fleet of foot kind of flexible approach to this and really tailor it to individuals or it's going to be really of limited utility. How often do you kind of redo the the re, you know, the rescripting or how many trials do you give it before you say, okay, well, this doesn't work. Let's move on to the next kind of the next form of therapy or, you know, okay, now it's time to add medication or. Uh, you know, I, 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 I hope I'm not fooling myself. I don't think I've ever run into that. I think we usually have enough time to um, focus on individuals who are struggling. But I think if we do our work at the front end, once again, this idea of plowing the field at the front end, if we have enough information and a good formulation at the beginning, we can usually get to a rescript that is that is tailored to the individual that makes sense and has meaning and can be practiced. I think the only problem is whether there's enough time while they're in the structured treatment to really track it. So sometimes we will have follow-up. So I guess, and kind of onto that, it's John, you kind of see these patients more. when. I guess it, it seems like the dream rescripting works and medications are m- maybe meh. I don't know. And that's something I hope we have time to get into a little bit today, but yeah. what, you know, is there specific characteristics where you say, okay, I'm going to start a medication or versus where I'm going to send to, you know, to see Todd. Well, not all these guys want to go on medication. Okay. So it, they make the decision quite easy. So, okay. and usually this is in context of workup for sleep apnea. So I give that a shot, especially if they don't want to start medication, but sometimes I'll think, and, and if it's recurrent content after that discussion, I'm like, look at, maybe we do dream rescripting first and we'll still work you up for your sleep apnea and stuff. But if it's, if they're like out of the gates, very severe, random content, um, and they just, cannot sleep and they just want to get started. Uh, I start the Prazosin quite honestly that, that day. So it seems like a really key point I think is to, to discern whether this is kind of uh recurrent yeah. thought versus random content. Yes. And it seems like the dream rescripting or even image rehearsal or rehearsal therapy is really focused and catered towards this recurrent dream versus random. And with a little counseling on, look at, it's not going to be one or two visits. You're going to have to go for weeks, practice this. It's some, it takes some, it takes some investment on the patient in the form of time. And some of my patients just don't have the time to make the investment or they don't have the patience with mental health anymore. They're like, I'm not going back to mental health. And so those are the, the, and that's where you snake into, okay, well, it's medication time, but it's well tolerated. You know, it's off label use. We talk about all that stuff, but you have to have that piece in there and you're right. It it matters. You know, the content matters and the chronicity certainly. So. Do you, could you give us any insight into some of the other kind of behavioral therapies for uh, the treatment of nightmares, like lucid dreaming, or I'm not sure, you know, if you're, able to comment on that. Cause I know, I know their therapies. Again, I don't, I don't know too much about them. So. Yeah. I wish I had more knowledge. I mean, I don't have um, much expertise or really um, clinical knowledge about lucid dreaming. I know it exists. Mm-hmm. I know when, when we run across it within our group work or when it, with our patient work, it really makes the challenge of reducing nightmares um, a dream because rather than a nightmare. Um, it's, it's rare that people can do it. It's rare. One. I, I don't think the listeners may even know what lucid dreaming is, which yeah. is what, exactly what you, so, you take control of the dream, right? 
Todd. Yeah. Well, so you are aware you're dreaming. Yes. This is my understanding of the definition. So you're asleep, you're dreaming, you're aware you're dreaming. And in that realm, at some level, you're able to kind of orchestrate or manipulate the dream. Right. The locus of control kind of. Yeah. Concept. So like but, but this is about, this is about 6% of yeah, the population, it, it, true, right? right? It's very, very small. Right. Um, but, but I hear at least from uh, anecdotal reading that, that it is something that can develop. And I think it's largely based on kind of, of uh, development of frontal lobe, you know, um, um, prefrontal cortex um, folks who are a little bit more, um, again, we talked about this, flexibility, cognitive flexibility, perspective taking, um, reflective individuals, they tend to have more of an, a capacity. For so it sounds like they're more evolved. <laughs> it's like they're a little more <laughs> X-Men or something. They're, 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 Tele- they're telekinesis frontal. is yeah. next. Has anyone here ever experienced a lucid dream? No, no, I have. And I, it was, of course you, <laughs> yeah, of course me. <laughs> I, ha- I was, in, I was enduring some violent content. I was being shot at and I didn't feel anything. And I realized it was a dream. And I imagined there was a cliff and I jumped off it and woke up. Sounds like the Matrix. It, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, but that's rare. So yeah. I think Todd's got to take off. So we're going to let you go. Okay, Thank you for right. coming. Thank you.